Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Jill Conrath is the best selling author of Selling to Big Companies, and now her latest book is Agile Selling. She's full of great advice and fresh strategies on winning new customers in today's evolving sales environment. Her expertise has been featured by ABC News, Fortune, and Forbes and the New York Times, Inc., and more. She's had over 125,000 sellers read her award-winning blog. The world of sales has changed profoundly. Jill will tell you how to be agile in this new sales environment. Jill, hello and welcome to my show. Hey, thanks for having me today. So you have this impressive list. You're an expert. You write books. You, you've been selling for decades now. How did you get into sales? Well, let me just flat out say I never wanted to be in sales. It was not my <laughs> aspiration in life. Um, and like many people, I, I I really hated it. I mean, I thought salespeople were slimy, manipulative, disgusting. You know, I mean, my, the words were endless, you know, in terms of what I would say about them. Um, but I was a high school teacher and I wasn't a happy high school teacher and I wanted to get out of teaching, and I really couldn't find a job that I liked. And so after a few years of really searching and not knowing what I wanted to do, I came up with a business idea uh, and roped a couple friends of mine in and put together a business plan and went to the Service Corps of Retired Executives and shared the business plan with them. And this gentleman who uh, had formerly worked at General Mills which is in my backyard, uh, said, hey, Jill, this, this is really a good plan. It's totally timely. Um, it's going to work. And then he looked at the three of us and he said, now, which, which one of you is going to be doing the sales? <laughs> and, and I looked at him stunned. And I said to him, with almost like pointing my finger at him, I said, I thought you said this was a good idea. And he said, it is, Jill, but somebody has to sell it. So I told him we'd have to talk about it, and we did, and I drew the short straw. So that's how I got into sales. Wow. So did you have a belief, Jill, that if it was a good idea, it would sell itself? Totally, totally, 100%. And what did you learn? (laughs) (laughs) Well, honestly, I learned that no good idea sells itself. That that a person, if they want to be an entrepreneur, has an obligation to their dream to learn how to sell. Because their whole dream will be stymied if they throw up their arms and they say, but I'm not a salesperson. That's not me. And... um. When you say they have an obligation to their dream to learn how to sell, that really is enlightening because that changes, you know, because I too have had that sales is, you know, snake oil, that whole snake oil thing, right? But this obligation to their dream, but isn't it also an obligation to the people that they want to serve? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, 
nobody, if you have something, whether it's a product or a service that you're offering, and it truly does make a difference to other people, then if you just sit in your little home office or or wherever you're at and, and wait for people to come to you, you're not you're not helping the people you could be helping in your life. You're you're you know less than you could be, I guess I would say. You know, but to me it, it's like if this is something that's so important to you, you have to figure out this essential element or else you will continually struggle and be on the edge financially too. So there's a very personal reason that we have to grab onto this skill called selling and it's not something that you're born with or not you know it's a skill that you can learn just like anything else in life so what comes first is it cleaning up the mindset that it's not snake oil or is it learning the skill sets well really it does start with the mindset and that was interesting to me when i reflected on it most recently um I, I totally believe that the right mindset will help you get through the the more difficult part of learning the skill. And by that, I mean, you literally need to start out with a commitment to figuring the, this beast out. I'm going to figure out how to sell my services or my products. And, and you have to make a commitment to yourself because if you don't, um, when it gets hard and when you make a fool of yourself, which I most certainly have done <laughs> on more than one occasion, if you don't make that commitment to figure it out, you won't get past that or you'll have a couple bad experiences and then you'll just say, oh, it's just not going to work out. I'm going to go back to my job and get a, a paid job. But the truth of it is it could work out. And most people quit shortly before it could work out. But if they could just stay in there because they've committed to it and say, I'm going to keep at it. I know I'm capable. Those other people who are successful are no more intelligent than I am or no more gifted than I am. They've just stayed at it longer. Then you can buy yourself the time to learn the skills that you need. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. It made me think of something in your book, Agile Selling, where when you first started out in sales, you found somebody, It instead of looking at the big you know, top-notch salespeople in the company, you found somebody who was maybe just a little further ahead than you, who you looked at and said, okay, well, if they can do this, then why can't I do this? If it's possible for them, then why can't I do it exactly. myself? It was, it, it was so helpful because if you look at the big time, you know, rock stars in any profession, they're intimidating and mm -hmm. you just feel such a gap between who they are and who you are. And you look up to them and you know, oh, I, I wish I could be like them, but I wish doesn't mean that it's possible in your mind. You know, my first role model or mentor that I chose, and this person didn't know he was my role model or my mentor at all, was a guy named Lowell. And he had been a teacher and moved into sales as well. And I kept saying to myself, if Lowell can do it, I can do it. If Lowell can do it, I can do it. I use the same thinking, by the way, when I had a baby. People, first time I was pregnant, people said to me, well, you, aren't you scared of having a baby? And I remember th saying to people, Look, if a 14-year-old girl can have a baby, I can certainly have a baby too. So no, I'm not scared. <laughs> I know that sounds really sick, but you know, if you compare yourself to, you know, outrageously successful people, you just you set yourself up to stumble cuz the delta is too big, but if you look at somebody who's just a bit ahead of you, you can see yourself in them, which gives you the motivation to work just hard enough to be at their level. 
And by the way, Lowell, I followed Lowell for five years when I was at Xerox, which is where I got hired to learn how to sell. And I, and I didn't mean to stay there for five years. I committed to only spending a year figuring out how to sell. But my goals changed once I you know, understood what the profession was really about. And Lowell was ahead of me for five years. And I just kind of followed his career path right, you know, right, up, the, right up the ladder. Um, so when you, when you talked earlier about people that will quit right, right before they can really make it, is it because, do you think one of the reasons is because they're looking at those big rock stars and then that's interfering with their own mindset and their own confidence? It is. It, it totally derails their confidence. It, you know, you look at somebody who's been doing selling or anything really for a long time and you know how awkward you feel and, and, um, and how many times you've screwed up and you're tongue-tied and you can't think of anything. And you just look at them and you say, no, there, there's literally no way. I mean, I, that's how I feel when I look at 115-pound women, you know, that there's literally no way. But I can look at somebody who's 10 pounds less than me and think, now that's possible. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important concept because you and I sound like we're wired very similarly. It's like, okay, if if this person can do it, then why not me? Versus when you look at those rock stars, well, of course they could do it, you know, yeah. especially because you're, you're sitting here going, I know the insides of myself. I know my own limitations. And, th- you know, my thing used to be, well, they have the special wand, right? They have the fairy godmother that's twinkled some, uh, their wand at them. And of course they're going to live happily ever after, ever after. Right. But that's not necessarily true. And you really don't know what's inside them, but we create these wonderful stories about those people. Yeah, and, and and then we see our own frailties, and we think there is no way, no way. <laughs> well, and isn't aren't the people that now that you've you've been doing this for decades now, aren't the people that are really successful? It's not that they're really special, but they have a sort of resilience to their to them. The one thing I find in the and I talk about it in in the book too is the other part of an agile mindset is the need to. Um, take and transform failures into learning experiences. And this is something that I see virtually all successful people do. And I, and I literally can remember forcing myself to have to do that in my first year in sales. Um, and I'll tell you, uh, you know, one of my stories is, is like horrid, but I was out cold calling because that's how I had to get my business. And it wasn't a lot of phone work and nor was it um, you know, online type of stuff, but I had to go out and cold call and I cold call on this company called, um, I can't remember what it was called, but I, I talked to this lady and, and her name was Tinsy. That's what I remember. And she was the administrative assistant to the president of this smaller company. And she said when I was cold calling that her company was in the, you know, was going to be making a copier decision and that she'd like to talk with me. And then over the weekend, I was learning sales. And I read a book about how you should be selling. I said, never, ever, ever deal with the administrative assistant because they don't have the power. You should be selling at the top. So I got back to work on Monday and I, and I immediately called the company and found out who the president was and set up a meeting with him later that week. And I was really excited because now I knew I was on the right track because I read that book and it said, you know, that's what I should be doing. So anyway, I went in later that week to meet with the president of the company, and guess who came to meet me in the lobby? <laughs> Tinsy. Right? Yes. Uh-oh. And guess what she said to me? She said, Jill, what are you doing here? 
And I said, well, I'm here to see Mr. Big. And that wasn't his real name, but, it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that's, you know, he was the big shot. And, and she said, why is that? And I said, well, because I want to talk with him about your copier decision. And she got right in my face and she was taller than me. And she started pointing her finger at me and swearing at me in the lobby and yelling at me and calling me these horrible names and saying, I told you that, you know, I was the decision maker and you went around my back and, oh, she just laid into me. And and it was, you know, the minute she came down, it was like it dawned on me that this was a stupid move. But when she laid into me in the lobby with other people around, I got, I I got faint. I mean, I, I started feeling my head getting faint. And the next thing I knew, I was on the floor and I I actually fainted in the lobby of that company and I was on the floor and people were staring over me and I had a really short skirt on back in those days and I'm looking at these people I remember the first thing I just put my legs together so I wasn't (laughs) an awkward display of womanhood and um, they got me up to a chair where I put my head between my legs and then Tinsy said to me are you going to be okay and I said Yes. And she said, well, I suggest you leave and never come back. Oh. And I did. (laughs) I left and never came back. Um, Now, you talk about choice points. If I had not decided that I was going to um, be successful at sales, that would have been a very appropriate time to quit and say, I am not cut out for this job. Um, It also... Uh, would have felt a lot better. But I made that decision that I needed to figure this beast called sales out, number one. And number two, I said to myself, okay, Jill, that was not real smart. (laughs) What did you learn from it? And I did learn from something from it. I learned that you never go around people, Mm -hmm. ever, that it's not right. And from then on, whenever that multiple people were involved in the decision, I would figure out a way to engage the person I was working with to bring me to the other person who made the decisions or was involved in the decision, but I would never go around people's back. Or the other thing I learned how to do is learn how to say to people, usually when I work with clients, I have to be involved with this person, this person, and this person defining specific roles. So I'll be contacting them as well. So I just set the parameters up at the very onset. So it made sense to them, Mm -hmm. but I learned and what I found all successful people treat failures as learning experiences. They gulp. They hate the failure. I mean, I hated fainting on the floor. I hated multiple other experiences that I had. But if I called them failures, I felt like a failure. And I didn't want to feel that way. So I just told myself, okay, Jill, what'd you learn? What'd you learn? What'd you learn? That's all I ask myself all the time. What'd you learn? So my listeners are going to understand this terminology because we use it all the time on the show is it sounds like you were really compassionate with yourself. Right. And the other thing is, it sounds like, Jill, you had a growth mindset, what Carol Dweck would call as a growth mindset. Yes. I'm not sure I was compassionate with myself. I think I was really hard on myself. <laughs> well, I but was scared to death. You know, I mean, I was scared to death. And I, I, if I said it was a failure, it made me worse off. So mm-hmm. I had to trick myself into not feeling bad. Does that make sense? No. I had to literally trick myself at that point because I didn't know any better. It makes sense. Well, so Kristen Neff, who's been on the show a couple of times, and she's from University of Texas and is a compassionate researcher, a self-compassionate researcher. But, uh, you know, one of the things about compassion is not saying, oh, sweetie, it's okay, right? You, at some point, you may have been, had 
you know, you didn't beat yourself up and say, oh my gosh, I'm a loser. Or this, What's no. wrong with me? You said, okay, what can I learn from this? Right. That's a very compassionate question to ask. Right? I guess it is. I never thought of myself as being particularly compassionate, but I think you're right. So, and, and, and I, you know, and I invite the listeners to realize that, okay, even if you start to beat yourself up, you can switch that. You can have that agility to go, okay, oh, I'm beating myself up. And like you said, it doesn't feel very good, right? So right. what can I learn from this and then improve? And realizing that these are skill sets that you can learn. Isn't that right? That's exactly what you need to realize, that everything is learning. And it's not about giftedness. It's about developing skills. I love that. Um, so did you always have this kind of growth mindset? Like how can I, what can I learn from this? I, I think I adopted it because I knew of no other option. <laughs> that makes any sense at all. It was either, it was either I called myself a failure mm -hmm. or I tried to figure out how to learn from it. I mean, I remember that, you know, feeling either or mentalities and I didn't want to be a failure. So I said, well, I better learn so I don't do this again. And I, I committed to learning. And, you know, did I have a growth mindset? Yes. Did I think about it as a growth mindset? No. I just thought about it as I need to figure this out. I need to figure this out. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what kept me going. What Did you ever think about returning back to teaching? No, I actually shut that door. I was offered a chance when I quit. I was offered a chance to take a five-year uh, leave of absence. Wow. And so that way, if it doesn't uh, work out for you, you can always come back. And I knew myself well enough to know that I didn't want a backfall. Because if I had a backfall, I probably wouldn't work as hard. And I really didn't want to go back to teaching. So I slammed the door shut and said, thanks, but no thanks. I will just quit. Wow. So for you, you wanted your back to be up against the wall so that you had to put yourself in a position yes. where you had to make it work. I had to make it work. I had to make it work. I quit teaching. I walked away from my professional career. I had to make it work. Jill and, and by the way, when you have to make something work, you throw yourself in harder, faster than you would as if you're sort of dabbling on the side. You were committed. Yeah. You were committed. How old were you? I was probably 26 at that time. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like you also had courage too, right? Because you were willing to fall down, you know, on the ground, get back up and learn from that and not let shame overcome you and stop you. You just said, okay, this is what I can learn from this. And did you ever make that mistake again? Um, I would never have defined myself as having courage <laughs> at that time. I mean, uh, I think you're imbuing me with qualities I didn't recognize. All I knew is I had to make it work. It wasn't courage. It was just I was I needed to figure it out because I, I had this thing I wanted to learn to start this company. So I had to figure this out in order to do what I wanted to do. And, you know, in retrospect, I guess I'd call it courage. But in when I was in the heat of the moment, I was not feeling a whole lot courageous. I mean, there were times like when I would um, sit outside a company for quite a period of time and, and in my car and not be able to go in because I was scared. So mm -hmm. I felt fear, not courage. Mm -hmm. um, and there were some things I learned to do on my own that sounded really stupid. And I was embarrassed to tell people about at the time. 
that I did in order to build up my courage. And one of them that I do reference in the book is a, a, a song that I sang, which was from The King and I. Mm-hmm. And it's called Whenever I Feel Afraid. And the, the verbiage goes, whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and strike a careless pose so no one will suspect I'm afraid. Then it continues on and it says some more. It says, the result of this deception is very strange to tell. For when I fool the people I fear, I fool myself as well. And I, I would sing that song over and over again. And I, and I remember standing outside the car and singing, you know, I strike a careless pose so no one will suspect I was, I'm afraid. So I hold my head erect and strike that careless pose and stand there for a while and finally go in to the company. And people literally responded to me differently. Mm-hmm. They responded to me like I was an intelligent person who knew what was going on. And I wasn't. I was a terrified young salesperson who, you know, didn't know what to say at that moment in time or how to say it. But because I was able to hold myself erect and strike a careless pose, they responded to me differently, which gave me the confidence to respond back better. So it was an interesting thing and dynamic that was going on that that literally changing your physical posture Mm -hmm. makes a difference. And I was stunned when I read a few years ago, some of the research that Amy Cuddy is doing Mm -hmm. on body posture and how if you strike that careless pose, or if you take up a lot of space like a Wonder Woman, how it literally does two things. Number one, it releases testosterone into your body, which all women have as well, which gives you more courage. And number two, it reduces your stress hormone of cortisol, which allows you to be able to do it too. So just by striking that careless pose, I literally physically changed my body into a more courageous being. So, Jill, maybe you didn't start in that place of courage, right? But you figured out ways and skill sets, tools to help you get more courageous so you can go walking in the door. That's right. And and, and they seemed really stupid and trite at the time. You need to know. I, I, did not, I, I was embarrassed to tell people, but I figured out these things that helped me. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's a lot like athletes that have rituals before they compete. Right. I mean, it wasn't until, I mean, I've been a swimmer since I was eight years old, have coached swimming for over 20 years. And it wasn't until about five or six years ago that I realized one of the things that the kids were teaching me is that if you're a young kid and you go up on those blocks, it can be, take a lot of courage. Like I used to think of courage as being in the battlefields, right? Yeah. Right. But courage is really that where you're risking that vulnerability, where you're putting yourself out there. And for a young kid who's mm-hmm. thinking the whole world is watching them, and really at a swimmate, you've been at swimmates, you're only watching your kid because <laughs> who wants to sit on the hot sun, right? But it's the, but so it's, it's a way of cultivating courage. And that's where what you were doing with your with your rituals, just like an athlete does with theirs, whether it's with listening with music or moving their arms a certain way, whatever their pre-race or pre-game rituals are, it's a way to cultivate courage so that they can rise to the occasion. Right, right. And you know, when you're in the midst of it, like I said, it doesn't feel like courage, but it does give you courage. Mm -hmm. So I want to go into talking about how the world of sales has changed because you got involved in the 70s and you were talking about cold calling and there was no such thing as social media. So I'd like you to let the listeners know how the world of sales has changed. Just fundamentally and dramatically. 
and and yet there's very much that's still the same. I mean, what's and I'll just say what's the same right now? Having a conversation is still the same. Building a relationship is still the same. Um, but what's changed is is a couple things. Number number one, with the internet, um, buyers have the capacity to go online and do research on a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, if they have a problem, um, they can find out you know about the problem. If they're looking at options, they can find out about you know who's out there. So. A buyer today can be really well-educated. Um, and in the past, the job of a seller was to be the teacher. Let me share with you everything you need to know. But today, the buyer often knows a whole lot if they've been doing their homework. So the role of the salesperson has changed in that they are not necessarily, uh, if somebody contacts them, they're, they're dealing with an educated person. On the other hand, that's if somebody contacts them. On the other hand, What's really happened with the use of technology and um, voicemail, email, et cetera, and with the, I think it's the downsizing of corporations and the fact that so many businesses are running so lean and mean, we're dealing with people, at least in the corporate environment, and I think really in any environment, who are crazy busy. Mm-hmm. They're overwhelmed and they have way too much to do. And the one thing that they're that everybody I know is talking about is their lack of time and how frazzled they feel with everything that has to get done. And when you're frazzled, and by the way, all sellers feel frazzled too, (laughs) but when you're frazzled, you do things that you wouldn't normally do if you were trying to be a normal, kind human being. For example, uh, what a lot of people who are new to sales don't realize is, is that when they send out an email or make a phone call, they don't realize that the buyer that they're calling or the person that they're talking, trying to reach is sitting with his or her finger on the delete button the entire time. Um, and if you look at your own behavior too, Corin, I, I, I would suspect that if you're listening to your voicemail messages at any time during the day, <laughs> is your finger not on that delete button? I hate voicemail messages. <laughs> I do too. I hate voicemail messages. And so the minute I can recognize that you know, it's a canned pitch or if it's a salesperson mm-hmm. trying to get a hold of me or anything that I'm not interested in at all, I delete the message. The same is true with email. I am overwhelmed with email. And like any person out there, any person who could buys anything, we sit as we go through our email, we sit and we delete things as fast as we can. Because it's a small way of getting stuff off our to-do list. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. you go to your email inbox and I opened mine up this morning. I had 27 messages right away. It's like, oh, my God, 27. I haven't even started the day. Uh, for people in the corporate world, they often will have 150 email messages a day. So people click delete, 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 delete um, as fast as they can. So a lot of people who aren't um, doing sales you know, or haven't learned sales will try one or two or maybe three times to reach a person and then quickly jump to the assumption that, well, they must not be interested. I tried. And they never called me back or they never emailed me back. But that is, like, totally not true. All it means is you're dealing with a very busy person who's protecting his or her time. Even if your message was really good, it might hit on a wrong day. I mean, I go through my messages. Like I said, I can, I can delete I can delete 15 messages in a minute, and I and I really feel perverse pleasure in doing that, you know? 
You know what I mean? Don't you? Oh, I know what you mean. It yeah. feels so good to delete messages. Oh, God, now I've got 15 of them gone. I can focus on the important ones. But again, now what that tells you is, you know, you're not uh, cold calling. You're trying to reach people by phone or by email. And now you're the seller. First of all, it tells you that you need to plan at least, I'm, I'm going to just tell people, you need to think um, in terms of planning eight to 10 touches. Touches being email or voicemail, mm. um, or maybe meeting people at a networking event if you're in person. Um, but you need to plan eight to ten as just the standard operating procedure. Number one, it's just the way it is today, and not let yourself feel rejected. It's just the way it is, and we're as buyers, we're the same way. So we can understand it when we look at it that way. The second thing it does, what it means that we have to do is it means that we really have to change um, our messaging, whether it's on the phone or via voicemail. And I'll, and I'll give you an example of what I see a lot of people doing, if that's okay. Yes. Okay. Because what I see a lot of people, nice people doing, and I'm, and I'm really very specifically talking about nice people who don't want to sound like a salesperson. Would that encapsulate your listeners? That would be great. Okay. That, that sounds like most people who are listening in, right? I don't want to be a sales type person. So in their efforts not to sound like a sales type person, they will call up and leave a message or send an email and say, hi, Corin, my name is Jill Conrath and, and I my company is XYZ and we specialize in in uh, a full line of marketing services and I would love to come up and set up a time to talk with you to find out how your company is currently doing this and, and then I can share with you what we're currently doing and I'd be glad to meet with you at your earliest convenience right mm-hmm. doesn't that sound nice yes but it's too vague too vague and how long would you have lasted hi corn this is Jill Conrad calling I my company is XYZ specialties I, I it wouldn't go very far with me <laughs> Plus, I would have to think about, okay, when would we set up the appointment, right? Which is now we're going to require more energy on my part. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. So the whole thing is wrong. And by the way, most people, if you say, you know, my company specializes in marketing collateral or my company specializes in design work or, my, you know, we specialize in doing this. The minute you say that what you, your company does, the person on the other end of the line goes, oh, marketing collateral? I don't need any. Delete. Mm-hmm. You know, if I if I call anybody and say, hi, my name is Jill and I specialize in sales training, the automatic mental reaction of a busy person is sales training. Oh, we've got that covered. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, we don't need any right now. And they delete me. So we can't, in our messaging, explain who we are, you know, what our company does. We have to take a different approach, which I'll come back to. But the other thing is nobody in the whole wide world wants to meet with you so you can learn about their business and what they're doing because they're busy, right? Uh-huh. So we can't say that. <laughs> and even though we're trying to be nice and consultative and say, I'd love to learn how you're currently doing this, they're going, oh, my God, I do not have time to educate you on what's happening. And so they delete you. And, and, and once again, the other thing people say, and I'll go back to the earlier messages, I'd be glad to meet at your earliest convenience because they don't want to sound pushy. Mm-hmm. 
But when you say, I'd be glad to meet at your earliest convenience, what you're really saying is what I'm here. I should say what I hear on the other end of the line. If I'm a busy person is I hear, man, you probably don't have a lot going on. (laughs) Right. Yep. Yep. And so everything about that nice message that an entrepreneur might say in order to not sound salesy sounds like every salesperson that's calling this man or woman and is eminently deletable in the first sentence. So it requires you to actually go back and think differently about the kind of messaging you use and how to um, change it up in different ways. And, and I'll just use my own example too. You know, if I call somebody and say, hi, you know, hi Corn, this is Jill Conrath. I'm with LeapFrog Strategies, a sales training company. We specialize in a full range of training programs to help your salespeople open more doors and close more sales. I'd love to meet with you to find out how you're currently handling your sales training and share with you what we can do. You know, if I use that, that doesn't work, even though it's very professional, very nice and very unassuming. But if I say, hi, Corin, this is Jill Conrath calling. I work with, um, I work with a lot of technology companies like yours. Most of the, my clients are having trouble with new client acquisition. I have some ideas you might find helpful. Let's set up time to talk. It's a whole different message. I'm not saying I'm a sales training company. That may or may not work for them. But what I have to do is engage them in a conversation to find out. So I focus on what my offering does for them and the problems or issues they might be having that I have some ideas that they can address. Again, they may or may not be a prospect, but I have to talk with them to find out. Mm Mm-hmm. So the key is what, how can you help them, right? What's in it for them? Yes. In all cases. What's in it for them? And, and then I, I want to go back to, because you said this and this is important, eight to 10 touches. So for those who think whether, and there's a lot of people who listen, a lot of my listeners who work in corporate America who are in sales, right? And they're doing business to business sales. So it's, it's eight to 10. And so if you just send out one email or make one phone call, it's really important to follow up, right? Because yes. I mean, right now I'm looking at my inbox and I have about 850 unanswered emails right now in my inbox. Oh. Yeah, no, it's a bit crazy. And, um, and, and so just recently somebody had emailed me about something and I'd come across it as a searching for something and I said, oh, you know, I find it interesting that they didn't email me back because this is something that they're looking for. And I wanted to email them. It just, you know, again, in that list of stuff, it became a lower priority. And as soon as I thought that, it was so funny because probably two hours later, the person emailed me back and we wound up being able to coordinate stuff. So it was good on their part that they were able to do that because my silence didn't mean that I wasn't interested. It just, in that moment, it didn't, it, it wasn't a top priority. Right. And I think a lot of people never realize that, that it's just in that moment. Mm-hmm. It might even be exactly what they, they're interested in learning about. Mm-hmm. But in that moment. In that moment. So eight yeah. to 10 touches and then what, are, what you're offering can do for them. And that's really an important thing. How can yeah. you help them? Right. And, and, and one of the things that I think is really important is, you know, people are having troubles or issues with anything. Um, a lot of people in sales don't want to, you know, I mean, they're embarrassed or feel like it might be like, um, being too nosy or presumptuous to talk about issues or challenges. And, you know, maybe people wouldn't want to reveal, you know, issues, but if you would say, you know, I work with a lot of companies who are struggling with this particular issue, 
you know, if it's an issue that they're struggling with or have had problems with or challenges with, they will pay attention because it it's what's important to them. Well, and that that goes back to because you just said it, right? It's not just me. There's not just something wrong with me, right? Which is usually right. shame. It's it's like, oh, other people have these problems. And so how can I learn this skill set to get out of it just like other people have? Right. Exactly. Okay. So how can now that we have that about how the world has changed, um, and would, are these kind of the steps that you're talking about when you said earlier about learning the steps to sell? Are these the two of the steps to learn? <laughs> I'm not sure if I'd call them the steps to learn. I think, I think, um, how can I say this? There, there's the knowledge that you need to sell, and then there's the skill set of selling. Okay. And I see, I see a need for entrepreneurs to learn both. And entrepreneurs, for the most part, they focus on what it is that they have, their product or service. And so there's a real crucial need to immerse yourself in understanding the customer or your potential buyer at a deeper level. And most people don't take that step and really figure out who am I selling to? What are they struggling with? What do they really want to achieve? What What's in the way of doing this? I mean, I've added, to me, you know, and especially because I do work in the corporate market so much, I see such a huge gap in depth of understanding of customer. And I see good knowledge on here's what we sell, but that's not sufficient. So like in Agile Selling, I talk about the two areas of rapid learning. And to me, you know, my goal in writing Agile Selling was to help people get up to speed fast, mm-hmm. fast as they can. If they're going to have to sell, how can they spend less time in the learning process and more in the, you know, getting work process? And so there is a need to map out and scope out what you need to learn first and, and actually dig in and become an expert on that. And then there's the process of learning how to sell. And when most people look at learning how to sell, they, again, first of all, their stomach wrenches and they go, oh, God, I hate it. Slimy, <laughs> manipulative. And then there's, I don't know where to start, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. scared and everything. And so that's why I, I do start out with the mindset. But when you break it down and, and you take a look at how people learn, they can't learn the whole skill set of selling all at one time necessarily, but they can learn parts of it. And the first thing that everybody needs is prospects, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. somebody to talk to about their stuff. And so one of the things I strongly encourage people to do is to focus on don't study the whole thing on sales. Don't read a book about how to be good at every aspect of sales or how to negotiate, how to close business. What you need to do is you need to open conversations. That's the very first thing. So immerse yourself in becoming good at opening conversations, you know, creating a connection so that people will want to talk to you. That's the first step. Now, if you've got tons of people who want to talk to you, then you need to know about what you should be doing in your conversations to be having a a worthwhile meeting for both the person you're talking to as well as yourself. I like that. So that can help with the overwhelm when you're a salesperson trying to go, oh my gosh, how do I learn it all? Get good at aspects of it and then build upon it throughout your, through, as you go through the sales career that you have. Exactly. It gives you a chance to build off successes as opposed to getting overwhelmed by the sheer amount that you don't know. 
So it sounds like instead of being like, you go really deep with the information, right? You really kind of learn about, hey, how can I open conversations? How can I communicate in conversations? And for some people, that may be a really a big challenge for them. Just yes. if they're introverted or extroverted or, you yes. know, how, so in getting that skill set so that it becomes kind of like more conscious, like when I say, you know, when we master a skill set like driving, we don't spend a lot of energy consciously driving now as we did when we were 15 years old trying to learn how to drive. Right, right. And, so, and, but, you know, remember when you were 15 years old, how overwhelming it was, mm-hmm. you know, and um, how going on the freeway was terrifying. Oh. But you didn't go on the freeway, and then parallel parking. Oh my god! Making Did a right, making a right hand turn for me. Oh, was it? <laughs> yeah. Right hand turn or left hand? Right hand. I was like, oh my gosh, it's going so fast. <laughs> That's my big memory. <laughs> and I remember um, taking my boyfriend down to um, downtown St. Paul to see a movie, and parking in a parking lot, a parking ramp, and the way down had a circular parking ramp you know, that went in circles the whole way down. And I stopped in the middle of the ramp and was crying so bad because I couldn't handle those constant turns. <laughs> and my boyfriend had to get out and take the car out of the ramp because it was so hard to go down a circular ramp. But that's how it is. I mean, if we can, you know, be kind to ourselves, that's really what it's like when you're learning how to self at, at first. Mm-hmm. There are those terrifying moments. Okay. Well, so that's great information for the listeners about focusing on one aspect of the selling process and really getting comfortable with that and then continuing to learn and expand because there's always going to be more to learn. Right. Right. And you know what? Let me just say too, if anybody wants some resources um, like on how to do some of the prospecting stuff, I've got a ton on my website that are all free. Okay. I will have a link on your interview page for that. Yeah. Um. So... We talked about, is there, are there other, so the learning process and the sales process. Um, mm-hmm. So knowing your, who your prospects are, knowing how you can help them, are there other things that are important in this to being an agile seller? Yeah. Let me, let me talk a little bit more about the skill part. Okay. Um, one of the things that I think people don't do enough is they don't practice. They, mm-hmm. they do things for the first time in real time for selling. And they're especially afraid to practice in front of other people to get feedback. But sales is a skill. And the only way you get better is to to do that. Um, One of the things I talk about in the book is the gobbledygook test. You know, and that's trying to explain to people what you do in a way that doesn't make you sound like a mush mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody says to you, well, what do you do, corn? You go, blah, 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 you know, and we, but we have to practice it. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to practice this kind of thing in real life to other people. It has to come out of our mouth, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we have to get feedback on it. So the best thing we can do when we're learning anything new is to have some peers that we can bounce some things off. They don't have to be in the same business as us. They just kind of have to be in the same boat as us, you know, perhaps entrepreneurs as well. And we can say, I want you to listen as if you are my potential buyer. And and then we might even have to describe the buyer to that person. I want you to listen as if you are um, the director of safety at a manufacturing company and you're busy and, you know, here are some of your concerns. If I say this to you, how does it sound? 
Does it, is it interesting? Does it bore you? You know, and we need to get them to listen as if they're our customers. And we need to say, I really need you to be honest with me because I'm going to be doing this live with like real potential buyers in the near future. And I want to make sure it works or is as close to workable as possible. Um, the same would hold true on um, voicemail messages. I mean, the first time I called and left myself a voicemail message was appalling. <laughs> I don't have you ever done that? No, but that's a really good idea. <laughs> no, yes, it's very revealing. Um, and I remember, you know, recognizing how much the market had changed in those mess, like those messages that I was giving you earlier were my mm -hmm. typical messages because I was trying to be nice too. And, um, and I remember having some very specific things I wanted to say about my unique services. So I spent quite a long time crafting a voicemail message to leave for somebody and I actually had it written down but then I kind of memorized it and made it more into bullet points so I could just talk it not read it like it was scripted and I thought well you know I'm just gonna call myself and leave myself a voicemail to see how I sound and I did and my God, I went on for almost a minute. That message was a minute long. And if you've ever listened to a message that's a minute long, <laughs> it is death. It is just horrid. And you are guaranteed to be deleted. And so I, that was the first time I ever heard myself. And I went, this won't work. And so I hung up and I called myself back again. And this time I talked faster because I loved every word I'd written. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to omit anything. And so I just talked faster. And what I discovered in talking faster was, although I got done in 45 seconds, which, by the way, was way too long as well, I sounded like an auctioneer. <laughs> I know it was bad. And so at that moment in time, I went, oh, my God, Jill, this isn't going to work. You have to start from scratch and you have to redo your message in a whole different way. I mean, it was like so shocking to me how awful I sounded. And then when I, and I kept calling myself back and listening to myself until I went, then I listened to myself as if I were my buyer, uh, you know, my crazy busy VP of sales. And I finally found a message that worked, which is, you know, kind of what I said to you earlier about, I've got, you know, I know a lot of VPs of sales are having trouble with new client acquisition. I've got some ideas on how to tackle that. And that's, you know, and I went, oh, I'd, call, I'd be interested. And then I was able to craft a whole campaign around that kind of theme. But the other thing I do, too, and I strongly suggest to people is that they email themselves the emails that they send out to prospects. Because, again, it's shocking. I mean, most people read emails on their cell phone. And anybody who has long paragraphs and long messages is automatically de deleted. Mm -hmm. You know, and so if we can start becoming aware of that, first of all, testing it against ourselves, reading as the buyer. And then testing it on some colleagues and friends and saying, if you were a busy person who was this kind of job or whatever, would this message, would you delete this message or where would you delete this message? And get feedback so we can improve. It's the only way we can get better. So that's like, that's just a key. It's that getting feedback, whether it's from yourself or from somebody else and getting feedback, tweaking, shifting, making adjustments learning, testing things out, and keep continuing to learn. And that sounds like one of the right. important things of a successful salesperson. Again, you know, when I, when I talk about the agile mindset in the book, 
one of the core um, mindsets is the getting better mindset. The, you know, the, the you know, I talk about transforming failures into valuable learning experiences, but also not to say I need to make one hundred eighty thousand dollars this year, or one hundred thousand dollars this year. But I'm just going to focus on getting better, getting better, getting better, because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all about getting better, and that keeps you in the area of controllable. You can always work on getting better, but you can sometimes get really discouraged if you set these big performance goals and uh, you start falling behind. So Jill, as we wrap up today, what are a couple of takeaways for the listeners about, you know, having this agile mindset while selling? Well, I guess, you know, I guess the one thing I would really say is to not, not get down on yourself because you're not a natural salesperson. Nobody is a natural salesperson. It is a learned skill. And if you can just tackle it as that and say, I'm going to figure this out, it is what will make you successful ultimately. And yeah, there's going to be rough spots, but if you can learn from those rough spots and focus on continually getting better, you will be successful. That's really good. That's very good. Well, Jill, thank you so much for being a guest today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So I so get what Jill talks about with getting into sales and, you know, thinking that it's just snake oil or this idea that if you have a great idea, of course it's going to sell. You don't need to sell or market. I used to hate that. I thought it was so slimy. And and maybe that's a natural response for some of us who aren't used to that. But when you really get into and you remind yourself about who are you trying to help and do you have something that can help people and how do you convey that message? right? That becomes so important. I mean, just recently I was doing some, um, I, w- I had an e-course that I was doing and people kept emailing me and be like, I want to be a part of this. And me realizing and remembering that this is something that can help people. And for them, it's a different price point than maybe my, some of my more expensive stuff that I, some work that I do. So, you know, how can you help people and how can you put your services out there? Or if it's a product that you have to sell, that can help people instead of thinking that it doesn't have value, right? I mean, and I guess the big thing is, and we didn't even talk about this, is to see, does what I'm, what, what I'm selling, does it really offer value, right? Is it helping people? And then getting rooted in that place of, okay, this has something of value. This is something that can help people and really standing in your strength of that, whether it's using some of the the tips that she talked about in her own journey, right? Listening to a song or singing a song to get courage, doing Amy Cuddy's, you know, posturing. How do you posture yourself in a state of confidence when you walk in? I have a good friend who will say, she'd always say to her kids whenever they're getting dressed as teenagers, you know, what you wear, wear it with confidence. So however you're applying your makeup or what clothing that you're, do it with confidence, Right? How many of you will have a girlfriend or you'll say, you'll put something on and then somebody say, oh, that looks so great. And you're like, oh, and you discount it. You know, own it. If you look good, just say thank you. And then this other idea that learning, right? How can you learn? How can you be in this compassionate place? And you may be, start out by beating yourself up, but getting into that compassionate place where you say, okay, what can I learn from this? That is a very compassionate question. And as Kristen Neff says, Dr. Kristen Neff from University of Texas, is that compassion is the key to change. It's a huge motivator. 
we think we need to beat ourselves up, but it's really when we get into that compassionate place that we can allow ourselves to be in what Carol Dweck would say is a growth mindset. So going into that compassionate place and asking yourself, what can I learn from this? Maybe you made yourself a fool. Maybe you sent out an email that had some wrong information. Own it. We're humans, right? We are flawed and move on. The people that don't want to be a part of people who make mistakes, maybe they're not your people, but there's other people that'll be like, yeah, I know I've done that too, right? And it makes you more human and more real, or at least that's what I find. So knowing that these are skill sets that you can learn and you can practice. And if you keep learning, that is the key to success. One of the things that I know for sure by doing this show is that, and I've talked with so many people who, you know, in the wide range of people of careers and success and financial or uh, just notoriety. And the thing is, is that the, the, the key common thing is that they are resilient and they're willing to learn, right? They never had this golden path. They get knocked down and this is said over and over again. They get knocked down and then they find a way to get back up. I mean, years ago, one of my first big interviews was with who's now my friend and mentor, Martha Beck. But prior to knowing her, I just read her book, um, Finding Your North Star. And uh, she came on my show, was so excited. And I thought, wow, she just must have had this great life, even though I knew it wasn't re- was not true because I'd read Leaving the Saints. Um, but her thing was, she goes, Corinne, I have been to hell and back, Right. And she's a New York Times bestselling author. She contri- she's a contributor for the O Magazine. She's been on the Oprah Winfrey Show. She's been on Owns Network. She has a very successful business, right? She's been in, featured in the New York Times. So she's been a lot of those things that we think of as qualifiers, right, for success. But she's been to hell and back. The thing is, is just like Jill was talking about, is that you don't let it make you go back right? And give up. You you find that way to develop that courage so that you can keep moving forward. And that's the important thing. That's what people who become successful and stuff is that they're willing to have courage and step into vulnerability, step into vulnerability that, okay, I'm going to do something and I may fall down in a really short skirt, make sure my legs are closed as I get back up. And then what can I learn from this? Instead of letting shame overwhelm you and say, oh my gosh, I need to go back and be a teacher, even though I didn't want that, right? Really paying attention and going, what can I learn from this? Always be learning. Jill had said that the key that she had seen in successful people is that they're always willing to learn. It's not that you people don't make mistakes. There's no such thing as perfection. So I think these are important. I don't think. I know these are important concepts and they take practice right? And I remind myself all the time. But as you know, because you listen to the show, is that this is the cornerstone. It's about practice, right? My clients hear this all the time, like, I know, Corinne, you're going to tell me, go practice some more. And you practice and you learn, and it's about deliberate practice, right? Sometimes some of the concepts that from Malcolm Gladwell's, I think, Outliers, where he talked about 10,000 hours, right? People said, oh, I can just phone it in for 10,000 hours, and then I'll be successful. It's about deliberate practice, really engaged to be, you know, a successful swimmer. It's not just showing up and going through the motions. It's about being engaged, being really, really present, right? Paying attention, making the tweaks, learning from it. It doesn't mean you have to be engaged 24-7. That may be too much, 
right? We need some outside influences or sometimes we need to go brain dump into TV, whatever it may be, or maybe we need to go exercise, but how can you be deliberate in those short bursts of practice, right? They can be small bursts. Remember what I talked about with Bridget Schulte in the Overwhelm show? It was, it could be chunks, small bursts, 90 minutes, get up and go do something else, right? So we don't need to overwhelm ourselves, but practice and learn your skill sets and then learn from the mistakes that you make. Be willing for, to get feedback from other people. Thanks so much for listening today. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself if that is possible for them. What is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide awake.